First impressions are difficult to overcome. Psychologists debate the amount of time that you actually have to make that first impression. Some say you have five or even 10 minutes. Others say you have only 60 seconds. And studies more recently have said that you have seven seconds. And even one study I read say that you have a tenth of a second to make a good first impression. First impressions are influenced by a number of factors. Facial shape, facial expression, vocal inflection, perceived attractiveness, a general emotional state, and a variety of other factors related to your disposition or your appearance or your composure. And it's all of these external elements put together that form that first impression in the eyes of the beholder. As you know from your own experience, people tend to get pretty attached to their initial impressions of other people and find it pretty difficult to change their opinion, even with presented with lots and lots of evidence to the contrary uh, once you've had a friendship with them. Uh, this phenomenon, this inability to change your opinion once you have a first impression of somebody is called the primacy effect. First impressions. It's why you look at yourself in your webcam camera on a different app before the Zoom interview. It's why you're careful before you turn the camera on. It's why you finally break out the iron and the ironing board after a long hiatus. First impressions, it's why you practice your voice and your smile and you open your eyes when you smile and you firm up your handshake like your dad told you to. First impressions from a perspective of career success are a very real and very powerful concept to understand. You can buy your clothing, or your makeup, or your voice inflection, or your body control, influence what others think of you, whether you'd be a good candidate or not. Well, our passage tonight has a lot to say about first impressions, but not from a perspective of how to make a good impression, and a good impression better, and the better ones best, uh, no, from this passage tonight, James 2, it helps us to understand what we call a first impression, at least in the eyes of the beholder, is actually our evaluation, our judgment of other people. Uh, not just when we first meet them, but in our ongoing relationships with each other as well. And that says a lot about the integrity of the faith that we hold. If and how we evaluate and judge others, you see, is a reflection of our understanding of how our faith is to be lived out toward others. I believe this is a much needed text tonight 
for our Bible study, not just because we literally are in the midst of a pandemic that has trained us to embrace outward moral standards, but because over and above and way before this time and way after, hopefully, by God's grace, this thing is long over, and yet also at the heart of the pandemic, our hearts are proud with judgment toward other people. We preside over others with our opinions of them, even if it's a snap judgment. And we assign others value in a far too cold and calculated sort of way. I believe tonight what God's word has for us is not just instruction that would simply make us a a better fellowship or that in some simple way it would make us nicer to each other or a little bit more unified just because the shepherd brought it up. But that truly God's God's word would do a work in our hearts that from the inside out we would grow in the love and the humility that we ought to have toward one another in a true and in a lasting way. Tonight we'll see that true faith puts aside partiality and loves others with the love of Christ. True faith puts aside partiality, and loves others with the love of Christ. And that is my prayer tonight, that we would stop playing favorites and instead put on love. That we would be those that 1 John 4 says of, that we show that we love God. Why, how and why? Because we love one another that we would be those in John 13, 35, that by, by us, by our love for each other, everyone would know that we are the disciples of Christ. My prayer is that we would put aside first impressions and the primacy effect of constantly believing the worst about someone who will never be good enough for you and instead love one another with a pure and a genuine love. So let's look at this powerful passage about partiality in just two headings, two parts. First, in verses one through four, the command against partiality. The command against partiality. First, here in this passage, we see that God commands us to not show partiality to not show partiality, a very simple command. And as we examine a faith lived out in James, we see that true faith shows no partiality. It's very simple. James, again, as he does throughout this letter, addresses his audience audience endearingly. He says, look again at verse 1, My brothers, my brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. This is a straightforward, cut and dry command to not show what the ESV calls partiality. Uh, The NASB or the LSB and 
the NIV, call it favoritism or personal favoritism. This word partiality uh, in the original language is sort of an invented word by the New Testament writers. It's a compound word, uh, kind of like whatchamacallit or homeschool. It's a compound made-up word that has a new meaning. Uh, the one we know most from the New Testament is 2 Timothy 3, right? The apneustos, God breathed. Uh, what we say is inspired. And so this word is a long word that literally means to receive face. To receive the face. The idea is uh, to have biased judgment towards someone because of their face, their externals. Receiving their face before anything else. Or uh, receiving their face instead of what you should consider instead. Or receiving their face as the priority. It's receiving someone differently than you would have if you had not seen them physically. In one word, it's discrimination. Before we look at the rest of verse 1, let's look at this vivid example in verses 2 through 4. Let's look at that again. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place while you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down at my feet. Have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Step into the room, you and James. You're the ushers at this assembly, this gathering. Literally, the word there is the word for synagogue. Let's pretend for a moment that this synagogue, this assembly, this gathering has a red carpet. And that carpet's going to be replaced soon, by the way. And it's got pews. That same comfortable old hue of red. And it's got a nice big choir loft. Just in theory. And James, standing next to you, he's got a stack of bulletins and the coolest bow tie. Or maybe was it this week the big fat tie with the uh, bald eagle on it? That's James. And he's got that stack of bulletins he's trying to get rid of. And it's 8.58 and he's letting people in. Even on the Roscoe side of the, of, the, of the church. The next person you see walking in is clearly rich. The text says literally he is gold-fingered. You see, his ring is not just a baller ring. He's got baller rings on all his fingers. This is a sign of clear worldly riches in the ancient Near East. 
And he's got fine clothing, the best and the most luxurious fabric in all sorts of colors. This is sort of an ancient Near Eastern drip, if you will. This guy's got it. And then right behind him, uh, the text tells us of the poor man. He has just this single, singular description, shabby clothing. No ring, no nothing, just one robe and it's earth tones. But you're not sure if it's dirt or actual earth tones. And it's worn out, it's raggedy, it's smelly. He's got shabby clothing. I can see it. Could you see it? Just coming up off Roscoe, you and James, the, uh, the ushers. James here says, if you pay attention to the rich man, if you show him favoritism, you see him and you think, well, yeah, let's treat this guy well. Let's bring him to the front, not on the side, but in the front middle. Let's unclick the little thing and let him in. You find him a nice seat. But then you relegate the poor man to standing. You make him wait like everybody else until the song is over. Actually, no, you just have him wait till the end of the service. He stands there the whole time in the back. Or maybe you let him sit on the floor, on the side, kind of like Sundays in July. Just post it up on the wall. Back hurting, can't get up, legs asleep. He's just sitting. James says, if you've done this, look at verse 4. Have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? If you do this, you make yourselves gatekeepers, judges, uh, with what James identifies here as evil thoughts, perhaps envy or jealousy toward the rich men, or some sort of divisiveness with siding with one or the other, or a selfish focus on how you can benefit from, from the rich man. If you do this, James says, and to be clear, maybe not literally at the door, but in your heart, you are creating distinction and difference based on superficial standards that you've come up with, rather than promoting unity and equity and oneness in Christ. You are putting yourself in the place of God as judge, and you're judging with evil intent. Uh, maybe it's some sort of error of superiority or some sort of mercilessness toward those who can't help themselves a little bit and get a job. Or maybe it's sort of some sort of ungracious attitude toward someone who thinks just a little bit awkward. You are making distinction and judging others based on their outward appearance. And you can do this, maybe not with literal sitting and standing, but simply with how someone's appearance sits with you or with their social standing. You can do this maybe not even over clothing or jewelry, but over gender or race or height or weight or someone's likeness to a K-pop star or the opposite of that, whatever that is. 
or their mask, or their masklessness, or their mascara, or someone's apparent cool factor, or their awkwardness. This kind of discrimination, this sort of internal deliberation, evaluation, valuation, or devaluation, is built into our thinking. And James, down the halls of time from the first century, rebukes us. Stop blaming the culture. Stop blaming Instagram influencers. Stop psychoanalyzing your tendency toward shallow thinking. It's your heart. It's your heart. In our proud hearts, we tell ourselves, we are fit to judge over others. In our read on people, our snap judgments are good as gold. In our sinful human hearts, our judgment of those around us is cemented in the externals. We don't give people a chance. Do you show favoritism? Do you divide and discriminate? even if it's just in your own heart? Do you see others at church across the way or maybe in your class and you draw distinctions and you make clicks and you say, well, he or she doesn't belong with us or he or she is too politically right for my leaning. I'm not really gonna love that person. Be real. What is your criteria? What's the external standard you judge by? What's your measuring stick? I want you to ask yourself that. I think, for honest, we all have at least a few. What superficial aspects of people are you holding on to? I think if we have an honest assessment of ourselves tonight, we should be able to answer who exactly even it is that we shut out sometimes. Who is so awkward or uncool or unlike you that you've decided it's more comfortable for you to make them sit on the floor, so to speak, than to love them with the love of Christ and give them a seat at the table? On the flip side, who are you being partial toward? Who are you elevating? Who are you based on physical appearance or attractiveness or wealth or perceived potential self-benefit? Who are you practicing favoritism toward? Whose money or popularity or reputation are you hoping to leech off of? Who are you boosting up in your heart to the detriment and downward distinction of everybody else in the room? This very simple instruction from James, show no partiality, deserves this sort of same simple examination of our own hearts. It's that straightforward for us. We've all had that common experience, the Sunday afternoon nap. 
the post-grace sleep. Whether it's in the comfort of your own bed or you have that secret spot here on campus. Have you ever napped with your contact lenses in? Some of you guys are shaking judgmentally. No, I've never done that. Don't do that. Naps and contact lenses are a dangerous combination. Don't Google it unless you're ready. Definitely not an image search. A stuck lens is something that we've all experienced for those who wear contact lenses from time to time. We have a stuck lens through which we ever so constantly are perceiving everyone. It's a stuck lens of partiality that must be removed. You've got to take it out. James, by the Spirit of God, says, show no partiality. Do not discriminate based on the externals. Do not show favoritism based on what you perceive, what you see, or what you judge. And so here we see this very simple command, show no partiality. But what exactly motivates us to obey this? How does this fit in with a true faith lived out. Look, at back, look back at verse one. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. An attitude of partiality, this kind of judgment of others based on the outward appearance that elevates some people and breeds contempt For others, James says, is fundamentally incompatible with the faith you have in the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, Jesus here is our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. Some translations say the glorious Lord Jesus Christ. And that word Lord rings true master or owner, Lord. That's who Jesus is. You see, James's point here is that the object of your faith is this glorious Lord Jesus Christ. And as you hold your faith in him, don't hold that faith with an attitude of partiality. You see, this Lord of glory is the one who is the radiance of the glory of God. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, the one by whom all things were created in heaven and on earth, the one who's before all things and in whom all things hold together. Our Lord Jesus Christ, this Lord of glory is the head of the body, the church, Uh, the one who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, and who is the preeminent one, the one in whom all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and the one through whom all things were reconciled 
to himself, making peace by the blood of the cross. And yet, Jesus, this Lord of glory, did not and does not look down on us. In fact, we are considered in Hebrews his brother in the household of God. Jesus, this Lord of glory, did not despise us. Uh, Instead, for our sakes, he was despised and rejected by men. And God laid on him the iniquity of us all. Turn to Philippians 2 because you need to see this. Uh, what it means that this Lord of glory uh, does not uh, hold distinction against us. Philippians chapter 2, look at verse 5. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. This is the Lord of glory in whom you hold your faith. And James is saying, as you hold this faith, your true and lived out faith in the Lord of glory, show no partiality. Uh, Don't in your self-constructed superiority look down on others because Jesus, the Lord of glory who deserved all distinction and honor did no such thing to you. As you behold this Jesus, the very radiance of the glory of God, yet who showed no partiality and instead loved and loved even to the point of death, live out your faith in likeness to him, in humility, in servanthood. Show no partiality, but instead love like the Lord of glory. Don't play favorites, but serve others instead like the Son of Man. Don't look through a pharisaical lens that your nose at other people, but instead be like our Savior who saw nothing but the image of God in sinners and tax collectors. And yes, even Pharisees. Jesus, this Lord of glory, emptied himself and humbled himself and became obedient even to the point of death on a cross. This is a beautiful picture of the humility and love and service toward others. It's the very opposite of partiality. Look at the end of this, though, verses 9 through 11. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, 
so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. You see, at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in the end and every tongue will confess Jesus Christ is Lord. Before the Lord of glory, there will be in eternity a level playing field, free of partiality and judgment and discrimination because every knee will be bowed down to the one true King Jesus, the, the Lord of glory. But for now, the foot of the cross, there is the same level playing field, which not perfectly, but ought to be free of partiality and judgment and discrimination. Why? Because we all in unity hold this faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. You see, the message of Philippians 2 and the message of James is similar. It's found in Philippians 2 verse 5, and we see it in our passage. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Do you see, let us follow the lead of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory as we endeavor to show no partiality, but to instead love like he did. So this is the command against partiality. Uh, secondly, and turn back to James, secondly, we see the contradiction of partiality. The contradiction of partiality. Here we see uh, that not only is partiality incompatible with the faith we hold in Jesus, it also contradicts the very nature and the very workmanship of God himself. Here in verses 5 through 7, James shows us just how contradictory, contradictory partiality is to God. Look at that, those verses again. Listen, my beloved brothers, verse 5. Has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you, you were called? See, James points out here that partiality contradicts God and his system and how he works. James points out here that while we in our sinful partiality tend to elevate the rich and despise the poor, 
God has instead chosen the poor in the world, uh, those who are materially and physically destitute. He's chosen them to be his. This is a truth we saw in chapter 1 in verses 9 through 11 as we looked at uh, the different divine perspectives that would help us find joy in trials. Perspectives that would uh, help us to make sense of our trials and make sense of the world around us. To look up and to see as God sees. One of those perspectives was that of the divine economy. The truth that God's economy is a reversal of this world's economy, this earth's values. We learned that instead of trusting earthly riches, our stuff and our status and the comforts that we think help get us through trials, that we ought to see God's perspective of eternal value and that that would help us find joy in trials. We ought to see that both the poor and the rich have a reason to boast. The poor in his exaltation from worldly lack to spiritual riches, and then the rich in his humiliation, that in Christ there is far greater riches to behold than what he owns on this earth. And so that's a review of chapter one, the, the divine economy. Well, here in chapter two, this, uh, verses five through seven, is an echo of that same perspective of divine economy. Uh, James applies the same matrix that he did to trials in chapter one, now in chapter two, to this issue of partiality. You see, the same sinful heart that operates on the wavelength of worldly riches and that makes you want to trust in their comforts in trials, here is what causes you to elevate the rich and despise the poor. And James here confronts that. He's saying, don't you get it? Has not God chosen the poor to be rich in faith and inherit his kingdom? You are, again, like I told you last chapter, seeing this from the wrong perspective. You're buying into the this earthly economy instead of God's economy. Because in God's economy, the only economy that will matter in eternity this passage tells us it's the poor that get chosen. The poor, as chapter 1 says, will be able to boast in, in their spiritual exaltation. Now we know this is true in just a general or a proverbial way, uh, both, in our, both in Scripture and in our experience of the world. Uh, many of those whom God has chosen, the present company included, are the poor and the lowly and the destitute. Jesus himself says in Matthew 19, there's sort of a reasoning for this. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. It is so difficult for the rich to resist the allure and the safety of riches and to truly forsake 
earthly riches and treasure Christ. Now granted, surely God has chosen the rich sometimes to follow him. Consider Abraham or Job, literally rich in biblical proportion. Or David or Solomon, Joseph of Arimathea or Lydia among other people throughout scripture who were rich with worldly riches, yet did treasure God. But in large part, God has chosen the poor, and that's what James is pointing out here. Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, and we need to see this truth loud and clear. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, beginning in verse 26. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. And God chose what is low and despised in the world even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. You see, truly, God has chosen the poor in this world to be his. And he has promised the inheritance of his kingdom to those who love him. And love him, not worldly riches or distinction or power or anything else more than him. And so James, turn back to James, James is showing us here that when we choose to make distinctions, when we choose to show partiality, we elevate the rich over the poor, we are actually doing the opposite of what God does. The sin of partiality is a contradiction to the reality of God's very nature and actions and standard. This is all built on the truth, of course, that God himself in his own nature is impartial. He does not receive the face. He does not judge from an external standard. Turn to 1 Samuel 16, and I think we need to see a biblical example of this. The context here is that it's a time in Israel's history where God's people demanded a king, a, a human king. And Saul was it. He fit the part. He was a warrior king. In fact, flip back to chapter 9. We need to see the description of Paul. Look at 9.2. For Samuel 9, 2. And he had a son whose name was Saul, a handsome young man. 
there was not a man among the people of Israel more handsome than he. From his shoulders upward, he was taller than any of the people. And then verse, in uh, chapter 10, we see Saul is made king. And uh, throughout 1 Samuel and the following chapters, Saul leads God's people, Israel, against their enemies. First the Ammonites and then the Philistines. But along the way, Saul lets his pride get the best of him. And he continues to disobey God and disregard God's commands. He was clearly someone who looked the part, but did not follow God. And then eventually in chapter 15, look there, we see that God rejects Saul as king. Look at 1511. God says, I regret that I have made Saul king. For he has turned back from following me and has not performed my commandments. And Samuel was angry and he cried to the Lord all night. See, Saul's out. Israel needs a new king. And God has a plan. He always has a plan. Samuel, the prophet, goes to the family of Jesse. And as Samuel's making his way down the line of Jesse's sons toward God's choice, he wasn't even there. He was out in the field shepherding sheep. We see this very important principle, not about kings, but about God, the true king. Look at 1 Samuel 16, verse 7. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. And God saw in David that day a man after his own heart. You see, while we, fallen and finite men, are hung up on externals, we so readily make distinctions and become judged over others. God, on the other hand, in his perfect justice, his infinite and flawless fairness, he does not judge based on outward appearance or externals. He looks at the heart and he sees what's truly there. And James says, for those in whose heart is a love for God, God gives them the inheritance of his kingdom. God's impartiality is evident throughout scripture. Uh, consider Deuteronomy 10 17, for the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great and the mighty, the awesome God, who is not partial and takes no bribe. Job, in the midst of his affliction, speaks of God. Uh, Job 34, 19. God who shows no partiality to princes, nor regards the rich more than the poor. Why? 
for they are all the work of his hands. Consider 1 Peter 1, 17. And if you call on him as father, who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear in who God is, but also in what he does. He is impartial. Consider Acts 10 and when Peter has his uh, big theological awakening, his uh, vision there. Peter exclaims this about the impartial God of salvation. He says this, Truly, I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. Peter, in, in his, uh, his astonishment that God would choose not just Jews, but also Gentiles of every nation, realizes that those who fear him and do what is acceptable to him, God will show no partiality toward. Romans 2 echoes the same truth. Turn there, you need to see that. Romans 2 verse 9. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also to the Greek. But glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek. Verse 11, for God shows no partiality. Throughout scripture, God's impartiality is the basis for his people, us, to also be impartial. God's people in the Old Testament, Israel, um, had in God's law uh, these sorts of commands. Leviticus 19.15, you shall not be partial to the poor or defer to the great, but in righteousness shall you judge your neighbor. Uh, Deuteronomy 1, the second giving of the law, says a similar thing about God's people needing to be impartial in their judging. And then this side of the cross, Ephesians 6, verse 9, speaking of masters as to how they were to treat their servants. Masters, do the same to them and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and that there is no partiality with him. Jesus himself in John 7, 24, do not judge by appearance, but judge with right judgment. Throughout scripture, we very clearly see that God by his nature is perfectly just and fair. And in his dealings with man, whether it be in general or in working salvation, there is perfect equity and justice and impartiality. And so here, back in James, we as God's people are to reflect that same impartiality and equity that God himself demonstrates. We are not to, to contradict God by showing partiality, but we are to pursue the same impartiality God has 
We are not to make distinctions and judge, but instead to love others with a genuine love which, with which God first loved us. And yet James, look at back at James verse 2, verse 6. He sees his audience still practicing partiality. It's partiality that contradicts the very nature of our God. He says, but you have dishonored the poor man. You've done it. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Uh, James points out that in the partiality he sees, these Jews dispersed across the land, uh, dishonor the poor man and are elevating the rich, who are the very ones that hold the land that they work on. These rich people are the very ones who oppress them and take them to court over the smallest of matters. This is, in James's logic, the irony of ironies. It's a thorough contradiction. Look at verse 7. It goes even further. Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? These rich people that were being elevated by these believers were not only the ones who controlled the entire society and made it hard for these believers, they also blasphemed the very God of these believers and Jesus Christ himself. Now we may not be elevating our own oppressors, people who are litigating against us, but Verse 7, I believe, is where the first century meets the 21st. You see, in our partiality, which is so steeped in a, this worldly value system, uh, we elevate celebrity and the ultra-rich, uh, the godless and the iconic, all who blaspheme the honorable name of Jesus by which we were called. But other times, it's not so much the celebrity uh, himself or herself, the individual that is so blasphemous. But instead, the value or the lens by which we are elevating or esteeming that which is blasphemous to Jesus. You see, whether we worship the richest man in the world for making cool cars or the money culture that surrounds him, whether we esteem the maker of the beauty line or make an idol of physical appearance, whether we elevate the power forward or the power, success, and fame of it all, James is pointing out the scathing irony of our partiality. This is the contradiction of partiality, that who or what we elevate is often contra-faith. It's contradictory to our God. And so James shows us tonight, show no partiality. Instead, love with the love of Christ. I want to just end our time tonight by reflecting on what it means that although God shows no partiality, notice he still does choose. 
He still makes a choice. And for many of us, that's past tense. He still did choose us. Is that favoritism or partiality in some way? I believe that's exactly where God's grace and mercy toward undeserving sinners, both rich and poor, comes in. You see, he, he does not choose based on our externals, uh, what we look like or what we do or what we don't do or what we've accomplished or what we've done to please him. His choosing is truly his choosing. His initiative, it's nothing that we've done to deserve or to earn it. Deuteronomy 7 is a beautiful illustration of this kind of grace. Verse 6, For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers, that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Know, therefore, that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations. You see, for us, this side of the cross, it's the same. It was not because you were more in righteousness or merit or desirability than any other person that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. For you were the least of people. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping his promise to you in Christ that the Lord has brought you out of the domain of darkness with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery. The New Testament describes the incredible truth that before the foundation of the world, God set his love on us and chose us, not based on partial standards of externality. We didn't even exist to have externality. Or that it was based on any way on deeds that we have done in righteousness. It was all his will and all his grace and all his mercy. You see, when God chooses, the Bible shows us it is all of grace. We must see with fresh eyes tonight that it is not because of deeds done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy 
that the impartial God chose us and gave us his son. I'm excited because next week we get to see in James 2 more of that mercy, that God's mercy triumphs over judgment. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that you are the God who saves. You, Lord, are the one who shows no partiality in your dealings with mankind. You judge with perfect justice. And Lord, it is by that justice, yet faithfully with your grace, that you have chose, uh, chosen us and set your love on us. And so we reflect at such great mercy and we rejoice. Lord, help us. We need uh, your spirit to work in our hearts, to humble us, to help us to see uh, others as you see others. Uh, not to look at the outward appearance as man does, but to see as you see others made in your image, uh, welcomed and accepted by you into the household of faith and brothers and sisters in that common household. So give us much grace, Lord, as we stumble through that kind of endeavor to love one another with a pure heart. But we know, Lord, by your spirit that it is possible and it is probable for those who love you to then obey you. So we ask humbly for your help. Uh, but Lord, we commit our hearts and our minds toward that end. Thank you, Lord, for this truth. In the Savior's name, amen.